Is the bottom of the box thick? Not very thick. Bother. No false bottom, then. Look here, Marco. Just examine the ivory inlay on the outside. Or rather, no, the lid. He reveled with delight. The lid. That's it, Marco. Kesselbach blinked his eyes just now. We're burning. Ah, oh, Kesselbach, old chap, didn't you see me squinting at you? You silly fellow. And to Marco, well, what do you see? A looking-glass inside the lid. Does it slide? Is it on hinges? No. Well, then break it. Yes, yes, I tell you to break it. That glass serves no purpose there. It's been added since. He lost patience. Mind your own business, idiot. Do as I say. He must have heard the noise which Marco made at the other end of the wire in breaking the glass, for he shouted in triumph. Ah! Didn't I tell you, Mr. Kesselbach, that we should find something? Hello? Have you done it? Well? A letter? Victory! All the diamonds in the cape, and old man Kesselbach's secret into the bargain. He took down the second receiver, carefully put the two discs to his ears, and continued. Read it to me, Marco. Read it to me slowly. The envelope first. Good. Now repeat. He himself repeated. Copy of the letter contained in the black Morocco case. And next? Tear the envelope, Marco. Have I your permission, Mr. Kesselbach? It's not very good form, but, however. Go on, Marco. Mr. Kesselbach gives you leave. Done it? Well, then, read it out. He listened, and with a chuckle. The deuce! That's not quite as clear as a pikestaff. Listen, I'll repeat. A plain sheet of paper folded in four, the folds apparently quite fresh. Good. At the top of the page, on the right, these words. Five feet nine, left little finger cut, and so on. Yes, that's the description of Master Pierre Le Duc. In Kesselbach's handwriting, I suppose. Good. And in the middle of the page, this word in printed capitals, APUN. Marco, my lad, leave the paper as it is, and don't touch the box or the diamonds. I shall have done with our friend here in ten minutes, and I shall be with you in twenty. Oh, by the way, did you send back the motor for me? Capital! So long! He replaced the instrument, went into the lobby and into the bedroom, made sure that the secretary and the manservant had not unloosed their bonds, and, on the other hand, that they were in no danger of being choked by their gags. Then he returned to his chief prisoner. He wore a determined and relentless look. We finished joking, Kesselbach. If you don't speak, it will be the worse for you. Have you made up your mind? What about? No nonsense, please. Tell me what you know. I know nothing. You lie. What does this word apoon mean? If I knew, I should not have written it down. Very well, but whom or what does it refer to? Where did you copy it? Where did you get it from? Mr. Kesselbach made no reply. Lupin, now speaking in nervous, jerky tones, resumed. Listen, Kesselbach. I have a proposal to make to you. Rich man, big man though you may be, there is not so much difference between us. The son of the Augsburg ironmonger and Arsène Lupin, prince of burglars, can come to an understanding without shame on either side. I do my thieving indoors, you do yours on the stock exchange. It's all much of a muchness. So here we are, Kesselbach. Let's be partners in this business. I have need of you, because I don't know what it's about. You have need of me, because you will never be able to manage it alone.' Barbara is an ass. I am Lupin. Is it a bargain? No answer. Lupin persisted, in a voice shaking with intensity. Answer, Kesselbach. Is it a bargain? If so, I'll find your Pierre Le Duc for you in forty-eight hours, for he's the man you're after, eh? Isn't that the business? Come along, answer. Who is the fellow? Why are you looking for him? What do you know about him? 
He calmed himself suddenly, laid his hand on Kesselbach's shoulder, and harshly, "'One word only, yes or no?' "'No!' He drew a magnificent gold watch from Kesselbach's fob, and placed it on the prisoner's knees. He unbuttoned Kesselbach's waistcoat, opened his shirt, uncovered his chest, and taking a steel dagger with a gold-crusted handle that lay on the table beside him, he put the point of it against the place where the pulsations of the heart made the bare flesh throb. For the last time. No. Mr. Kesselbach, it is eight minutes to three. If you don't answer within eight minutes from now, you are a dead man. The next morning, Sergeant Gourel walked into the Palace Hotel punctually at the appointed hour. Without stopping, scorning to take the lift, he went up the stairs. On the fourth floor he turned to the right, followed the passage, and rang at the door of 415. Hearing no sound, he rang again. After half a dozen fruitless attempts, he went to the floor office. He found a head waiter there. Mr. Kesselbach did not sleep here last night. We have not seen him since yesterday afternoon. But his servant, his secretary, we have not seen them either. Then they also did not sleep in the hotel. I suppose not. You suppose not, but you ought to be certain. Why? Mr. Kesselbach is not staying in the hotel. He is at home here, in his private flat. He is not waited on by us, but by his own man, and we know nothing of what happens inside. That's true, that's true. Gourel seemed greatly perplexed. He had come with positive orders, a precise mission, within the limits of which his mind was able to exert itself. Outside those limits he did not quite know how to act. "'If the chief were here,' he muttered, "'if the chief were here!' He showed his card and stated his quality. Then he said, on the off chance, "'So you have not seen them come in?' "'No.' "'But you saw them go out?' "'No, I can't say I did.' "'In that case, how do you know that they went out?' "'From a gentleman who called yesterday afternoon.' "'A gentleman with a dark moustache. "'Yes, I met him as he was going away, about three o'clock. "'He said the people in 415 have gone out. "'Mr. Kesselbach will stay at Versailles tonight, at the reservoir. "'You can send his letters on to him there. "'But who was this gentleman? By what right did he speak?' "'I don't know.' Gourel felt uneasy. It all struck him as rather queer. "'Have you the key?' No, Mr. Kesselbach had special keys made. Let's go and look. Gourel rang again furiously. Nothing happened. He was about to go when, suddenly, he bent down and clapped his ear to the keyhole. Listen, I seem to hear. Why, yes, it's quite distinct. I hear moans. He gave the door a tremendous blow with his fist. But, sir, you have not the right. Oh, hang the right! He struck the door with renewed force, but to so little purpose that he abandoned the attempt forthwith. "'Quick, quick, a locksmith!' One of the waiters started off at a run. Gourel, blustering and undecided, walked to and fro. The servants from the other floors collected in groups. People from the office, from the manager's department, arrived. Gourel cried, "'But why shouldn't we go in through the adjoining rooms? Do they communicate with this suite?' "'Yes, but the communicating doors are always bolted on both sides.' "'Then I shall telephone to the detective office,' said Gourel, to whose mind obviously there existed no salvation without his chief. "'And to the commissary of police,' observed someone. "'Yes, if you like,' he replied, in the tone of a gentleman who took little or no interest in that formality. When he returned from the telephone, the locksmith had nearly finished trying the keys. The last one worked the lock. Gourel walked briskly in. He at once hastened in the direction from which the moans came, and hit against the bodies of Chapman the secretary and Edwards the manservant. 
one of them, Chapman, had succeeded, by dint of patience, in loosening his gag a little, and was uttering short, stifled moans. The others seemed to sleep. They were released. But Gourel was anxious. Where is Mr. Kesselbach? They went into the sitting-room. Mr. Kesselbach was sitting strapped to the back of the armchair, near the table. His head hung on his chest. "'He has fainted,' said Gourel, going up to him. "'He must have exerted himself beyond his strength.' Swiftly he cut the cords that fastened the shoulders. The body fell forward in an inert mass. Gourel caught it in his arms and started back with a cry of horror. "'Why, he's dead! Feel! His hands are ice-cold! And look at his eyes!' Someone ventured the opinion, an apoplectic stroke, no doubt, or else heart failure. True, there's no sign of a wound. It's a natural death. They laid the body on the sofa and unfastened the clothes. But red stains at once appeared on the white shirt, and when they pushed it back, they saw that near the heart the chest bore a little scratch through which had trickled a thin stream of blood. And on the shirt was pinned a card. Gourel bent forward. It was Arsène Lupin's card, blood-stained like the rest. Then Gourel drew himself up, authoritatively and sharply. Murdered! Arsène Lupin! Leave the flat! Leave the flat, all of you! No one must stay here or in the bedroom. Let the two men be removed and seen to elsewhere. Leave the flat, and don't touch a thing. The chief is on his way. End of chapter 1